Great joy to be with you today, open up God's Word with you. Uh, If you're new with us today, my name is David Cassidy, I'm lead pastor here at Spanish River Church, and we're in a series, King of Hope. And in that series, we're walking through Matthew's Gospel as he unfolds for us the story of Christ Jesus. Matthew, remember, uh, his Jewish name's Levi, he was a tax collector, Christ called him to himself, he experienced the miraculous transformation that happens when Jesus takes hold of a person's life. And he's writing as somebody from a very Jewish background to very Jewish people, a mixed congregation, largely Jewish, Gentiles as well. And he's setting before them the remarkable events of Jesus' life and how in particular they fulfill Old Testament prophecy from Isaiah, from Micah, and so on. And the way that works isn't simply a a prophet saying, well, this is going to happen, and so then Jesus does it, though there are those kinds of fulfillments. The other way in which that occurs is that Israel's story, as it is told in the pages of the Law and the Prophets and the Psalms, is reimagined, recapitulated, retold in Jesus' own life and what happens to him. And a perfect example of this is an Old Testament prophet named Hosea. And Hosea, looking back at what God had done in Israel's past, says this, out of Egypt have I called my son. Hosea is prophesying about 700 years before Jesus' birth, and he's looking back a thousand years to the exodus with Moses. And God's saying, I called my son, Israel, out of Egypt. But when Matthew takes up that prophecy. He says, out of Egypt have I called my son. And he says, don't you see, Jesus, after his birth in Bethlehem, was a refugee with his mother and and Joseph. And they were in Egypt, in the land of Egypt. They were there because Herod was trying to kill them. And then, after the passing of Herod, they came back and settled in Nazareth. And out of Egypt have I called my son. And so the story of Israel begins to be retold, recapitulated in the life of Jesus. Of course, what happened to Israel when they came out of Egypt? When God said to them, you're my son, you're my beloved, you're my son, what immediately happened to them? Well, they went into the wilderness. They went into the wilderness. God had said, I've got a land of promise for you. And so he says, I'm going to take you through this this wilderness and I'm going to bring you to the promised land. So out of Egypt, through the wilderness, into the promised land. It says in the book of Deuteronomy, it's an 11-day journey from where they were to Kadesh Barnea, the border of the promised land. And then in the next verse it says, and 40 years later. So they, they managed to turn an 11-day trip into a 40-day, 40-year, sorry, a 40-year uh, trip through the wilderness. And um, they, they discovered in that place, that place in the wilderness, what was in their heart. Now, Jesus comes to the Jordan River. We looked at this last week. He hears the Father say, you're my son, you're my beloved. Out of Egypt have I called my son. So what do you expect to happen now? You expect now for Jesus to go into the wilderness, and that's exactly what happens. Immediately after his baptism at the Jordan, when the Spirit descends on him and the Father says, this is my son, I've called him out of Egypt, you would expect now... Yes, here's the story. We know this story. Now is the time of wilderness. 
And so when you read in Matthew chapter 4, we'll pick it up here, verse 1. Let's look at this. Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. If you want to follow along with me, if you've got a print version of the Bible, great, open that up. Got an app, follow along. You can follow along on the screens as well. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, that's what Moses did in the wilderness. Israel wandered in the wilderness 40 years. Moses fasted 40 days and 40 nights. The tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. Here's the devil quoting the Bible. That's always very interesting. Psalm 91, and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him up to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God. And him only shall you serve. And then the devil left him. And behold, angels came and were ministering to him. This is the gospel of the Lord. My friends, uh, Christ is in the wilderness. And he is there facing the prince of darkness. And this is a very curious scene. He is quoting the book of Deuteronomy, back to the enemy. The book of Deuteronomy is what covers Israel's experience in the wilderness. Jesus quotes from that book three times in response to the temptations that are set before him. He quotes from Deuteronomy 8. He quotes from Deuteronomy 6 because this was the story of how God led his people through the wilderness. A pillar of fire by night, a cloud by day. It's the spirit that's led Jesus into the wilderness. And there he faces this dark enemy, and he is tempted. Now, for, for those of you who would call yourself a Christian, you understand that a word like temptation is something of common currency to us. We experience it. We understand that it arises because of things that would entice us from within. We also understand that it can arise as what's within us responds to things that are on the outside, and we are aware of the fact that we're supposed to turn away from temptation to serve the Lord. But for many people at this particular moment in history, the whole notion of the fact that there is good and evil is something that is rather up for grabs. Uh, There is, in fact, for the first time in human history, No transcendent moral order that everybody in a particular culture agrees to. There have been competing 
transcendent moral compasses that people have adhered to over the centuries, and sometimes a Muslim one, sometimes a Jewish one, in some cases a Christian one. But this is the first time in human history that there's ever been a season in which people said there is no unified moral theory, there is no way of identifying right and wrong. Now, of course, if there is no total unifying theory about a God and what's right and what's wrong and what's sin and how repentance takes place and how being right with God takes place, this was the common currency of conversation in evangelism that I would have with someone as recently as when I was in college. And I know some of you were looking at me when you were in college. That was the last century. It was right after the Civil War or something, I know. But... um, It's not that long ago, but now we have a time in which moral ethicists are having in the academy to propose a variety of solutions as to how there can be such a thing as good and evil at all. There is no transcendent moral order. Now, if you're left without a transcendent moral order and you are going to have to navigate life you're going to have to determine in some way what's right, what's wrong. What, how are you going to get through this? But if there is no transcendent moral order, there is no revelation that says this is right and this is wrong, from where is your morality going to come? Well, there's only one source left, yourself. It has to come from within you. And of course, if you're the person who gets to decide the rules, you're going to, how many of you would bend them your way? And that's exactly what's happened. What's right and what's wrong is determined by me because I am the person on the throne of my own existence. I determine for myself what is right and what is wrong. And how dare you tell me that I am wrong? One ethicist put it this way about a year ago, he wrote in an article We do not need saving. The only thing from which we need saving is the idea that we need saving. So if you don't need saving, it's because, of course, you've established your own new set of ethics, your own new laws. Temptation doesn't really exist. And so this text that we've just read can, to many people, appear to be something of an anomaly. Why are we even bothering with this situation in the wilderness? Why is Jesus being tempted by this mythical creature called Satan? But what if he's not a myth? What if evil is personified in a being that is bent on the destruction of the human race, whose inner core is set on rebellion against God, and lives and breathes with hate to demolish your life. What if that being is real? Now, a lot of people have strange ideas about the devil. Uh, They think he has horns and a tail and hooves. And that looks more like Pan. That image comes from uh, Greek mythology more than it comes from Scripture. That's not what Satan looks like. Satan looks like George Clooney. That's what he looks like. What does he look like? We don't know what he looks like. We don't know what he looks like. 
we know that he's beautiful. He disguises himself as an angel of light. If he came on the scene looking the way that mythology portrays him, everyone would run away, but that's not what people, people are attracted to him. He is able to seduce them. He is able to convince them that they should be making their own rules. They can determine for themselves what is right and wrong. This is a very popular notion today. Moral ethicists have even come up with a name for it where um, uh, they, they refer to it as, as um, evolutionary game theory. Now, in evolutionary game theory, society and human beings have evolved over the centuries and created cultures which inform us about what's right and wrong, and we feel the pressure of cultural conformity. But the right thing to do is to rebel against cultural conformity and to discover within yourself how to treat other people. And so if you will, you will discover in evolutionary game theory, the TCT formula, uh, TFT formula, tick for tat. If you're nice to people, generally speaking, they'll be nice to you in return. I think that's actually an overrated formula. But if you are nice to people, you'll discover that they are nice to you in return. What's the problem with that theory? The problem with that theory is who's defining niceness? Where did your concept of justice come from? Where did your concept of niceness find its origin? Years ago in the Gulag Archipelago, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who was imprisoned by the Soviets, wrote this. It was only as I lay there rotting on the prison straw that I sensed within myself the first stirrings of good. Gradually it was disclosed to me that the line separating good and evil passes, not through states, not between classes, not between political parties. The line between good and evil passes through the human heart. Every single heart has this line. He goes on to say, inside us, it oscillates with the years. And even within the hearts overwhelmed by evil, a small bridgehead of good is retained. And even in the best of human hearts, there remains an uprooted small corner of evil. Christians know that. Paul calls it the flesh. We refer to it sometimes as indwelling sin. That even in the holiest of people, even in the humblest of people, sin is still there. We know it. We're aware of it. If I had a humble day, I'd be proud of it. I'd tell you, I was so humble today. Did you see me? And so this evil is there and it entices. And, and we wonder, how do we conquer the darkness? So sometimes people take Matthew chapter 4 and they go, well, here's the manual. Because Christ conquers the devil, this is the how-to manual on how you're supposed to conquer the devil. The problem with that is that in our hearts we still have evil. But Christ, as the writer of Hebrews says, was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. So what the Bible teaches is not that Jesus' encounter with the darkness in the wilderness is a how-to manual for warfare against the prince of darkness. It's calling us to sit at Jesus' feet and see him not teach us how to conquer darkness, but to see him conquer the darkness and to put our trust in his victory so that he leads us in triumph.
You see, I don't need to ask for a show of hands here this morning for all of the people who never sinned in the past week. I, I don't even need to do it. Why? Because we have. We all know we've sinned. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. We know that. I was on a platform one time. A man was speaking, and he got very carried. This is over in, in, in Great Britain. He was preaching. He got in one of those carried away kind of moments. And he said, I want to see the hands of everybody who hasn't sinned in the last week. And I and a few other ministers were up on the platform sitting there behind him, and the minister next to me raised his hand. And I just looked at him, and I went, what? what? And he goes, well, I've just been so busy. <laughs> I was like, get, get out of here. We know, we know we've fallen. And so the issue is not that you're going to get so good at resisting the darkness that you will overcome every single temptation that comes against you. Rather, it is that Jesus, in his wilderness experience, fights the battle for you so that when you and I encounter the wilderness, we do not put our trust in ourselves, but in Jesus who delivers us. See, temptation's going to keep coming. I had a guy come into my office, and he sat down with me, and he, he was a young man. He was a young Christian. He'd only been a Christian for a couple of months. And he said, it's awful. It's terrible. All these temptations. I want you to pray with me that I will not experience temptation anymore. I said, oh, that's so great. Let's take hands. So we took hands, and I said, Father, I pray that you will, you will take this young man to heaven this afternoon. And he, he, he shook my hands. He goes, what are, you, what are you doing? What are you doing? I said, that's the only way you're going to experience the absence of temptation. You got to die and go to heaven. That's it. He's like, well, I don't want to go today. I want to go to heaven, just not today. And I'm just trying to pray that I won't experience any more temptations while I'm here. I said, well, that's not going to happen. That's not going to happen. No. Paul says, though, in 1 Corinthians 10, no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you may be able to bear it. What is the way of escape? Here it is. Matthew chapter 4. Jesus in the wilderness, facing temptation. You find yourself in the wilderness. Listen, listen, beloved. Between every promise and every promised land, there's a problem. There's a wilderness. You hear the promise of God and you say, I believe it. But between the promise made to you and the promise fulfilled in you, there is a wilderness to pass through. And what happened to Israel in the wilderness is two things. Their hearts were exposed. They saw what was in them. They saw what was within them. And secondly, they saw God's faithfulness. They saw who God was. They saw who they were. They saw who God was. That's what Christian growth means. You discover the depths of your fall and the heights of his love, the heights of his faithfulness. That your Savior does not love you for your performance. He does not cherish you because of how good you are. He loved us when we were his enemies. He died for us on the cross when we hated him. He has brought us to himself, and he, he will keep us through the wilderness all the way to the other side and into the promised land. And what happens in this wilderness promises us that. What are these temptations? They're common to man, very simply. 
Jesus is tempted with hunger, in the midst of hunger, to satisfy his own passions. He is tempted with accusation to prove himself. And he is tempted in mission with a shortcut. It's physical, it's psychological, it's political. He is tempted to gratify himself. He is tempted to prove himself. He is tempted to exalt himself. Let's look at this. Satisfy your passions. After he was hungry, the devil came to him and he said, turn these stones into bread if you're the son of God. But he answered from Deuteronomy chapter 6, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Every word. The word. That's the bread. This is Deuteronomy chapter 8, sorry. And, And in that passage... In that passage, what God says to his people is, I brought you out into this wilderness, and I am going to provide food for you here, and he gives them manna to eat. What Jesus says to the devil is, I don't have to turn stones into bread because my food does not depend on my action. It depends on God's faithfulness. He will provide for me. It turns out, That Jesus does not have to turn any stone into bread because Jesus is the only rock that can become bread for the hungry. He said, I'm the true bread that comes down out of heaven that satisfies every soul. And there are moments in your wilderness where you will come to the point where you have nothing. And you will discover the truth that Christ is all you need when Christ is all you have. And the enemy will come to you and say, God's not being faithful. God is not providing for you. And you will say, with Jesus, my food is to do the will of the Father who sent me. My meat is the word. Your words were found, and I ate them, Jeremiah said. And they became to me the joy and the delight of my heart. Here's the second temptation. Not just satisfy yourself or gratify yourself. You've got physical passions. You've got got physical hungers. They're legit satisfy them you're beloved just satisfy them jesus says no my hunger is satisfied by the truth of the scriptures my soul is satisfied by doing the will of my father here's the second one prove yourself if you're the son of god satan takes him up on this pinnacle of the temple he says throw yourself down and he quotes scripture to him he says the angels will catch you in other words do something foolish To make God show up, then we'll know. One of my favorite Kentuckians, Muhammad Ali, very early in his career was, was, well, I'll just say this. He was early in his career, how shall I put this, arrogant. And um, a little little on the prideful side. He was on a flight, and uh, stewardess came around and said, you need to buckle your your seatbelt. And he said, Superman, don't need no seatbelt. And she said, Superman, don't need no airplane. (laughs) Buckle up. So so here's what people do. They think, I'll just do, I'll just live however I want to live. I'll just do crazy stuff. God will protect me. God will protect me. That's the temptation here. If you're the son of God, just throw yourself out of it. The angels will catch you. 
They'll show who you really are. They're going to show, because they're, they're not going to let you fall all the way to the ground. They'll, they'll catch you. Now here's, and then listen to what Jesus answered. It's from Deuteronomy 6. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Here's what's happening. Jesus is being tested, and here's what Satan tells him to do. Flip the test. Flip the test. You're going through a test? Flip it. Test God. Make God show up. Test him. My friends, when we're going through tests and trials, we may have a hope that God shows up in a particular way. Say you're going through a sickness and you want God to heal you. I know people who say, well, if God, if God loves you, then he'll heal you. God proved his love for us on a cross 2,000 years ago. And he does not have to show up to deliver martyrs or any of us from anything else. Because 2,000 years ago, to prove his love, it says God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were still his enemies, Christ died for us. The cross is the proof. And that's why when you get out into the wilderness, your heart begins to be exposed. It's not God who's being put to the test. We're being put to the test. And when we're being put to the test, we need to put our trust in Christ. Let me tell you what the wilderness does. The wilderness helps you put your trust in Christ. Everything was taken away from Job. Everything. Children, possessions, health. You remember what his wife said to him? Curse God and die. Not great counsel. <laughs> Just throw it in. Deconstruct your faith. God has abandoned you. God isn't real. Forget it. De-church. Deconstruct. Get rid of everything. And Job, listen to what Job said. Though he slay me, I will trust. You see trust and faith. You see trust and faith in operation, not when everything's going great, but when it's going badly. And Jesus said, I'm not going to flip the script here. We're not putting God to the test. Oh, no. Oh, no. You shall not put the Lord to the test. Here's the third thing. Exalt yourself. You see all these kingdoms? I'm going to give them to you. This is just naked, raw temptation now. Jesus' mission was to redeem all the kingdoms of the world. And Satan said, you don't have to go to the cross. You don't have to put up with these crazy disciples. Look at that bunch over there. Forget that. All you got to do is one thing, Jesus. Just come and bow down in front of me. I'll give you. I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. They'll all be yours. And Jesus said, be gone, Satan. Because my relationship with my father is more important than the mission my father gave me. It's the temptation that says to you, you can't get anything done in your business. You can't get anything done in the political sphere unless you give up your ethics. Give up truth telling. Give up your integrity. Give it all up. Do what has to be done that's wicked so that you can have the power to do what's good. Oh, that's a dark temptation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can do the bad stuff in the church for the sake of the church being big or whatever else. But my friends, it's the relationship with the Father that's more important than the mission the Father gives. And Jesus says, no, you be gone, Satan. And so it says, he departed. 
And then those angels that he said would catch you, the angels, the angels came and ministered to him. It says that Satan left him until a more opportune moment. That's in Luke's gospel. He left him until a more opportune time. When was that? Well, that was just about three years later at the cross. And then he saw him hanging there between heaven and earth. And he said, now I've got him. I've got him right where I want him. But he did not know that in that moment, as Jesus hung there on the cross, he was not only shedding his blood to forgive our sin, he was behind the scenes wrestling with principalities and powers. And Paul tells us that while you and I would have stood there and only seen a dying man with parched, broken lips and a protruding tongue and a battered body gasping for breath, naked and shamed there on the cross, bleeding down, out onto the ground. That's all we would have seen. Paul tells us behind the scenes he was conquering principalities and powers. He was ravaging hell. He was, he was destroying the prince of darkness. He was destroying death forever. He was defeating the devil. The devil came to Golgotha expecting to walk away the winner. He came to Golgotha and he walked away the everlasting loser because at the cross of Christ, Christ triumphed over the darkness forever. And that is why this morning, in every temptation we face, we can turn to Christ the conqueror and say, Jesus, I put my trust in you. And every time we fail, Every time we succumb to temptation, we can come back to him and say, Jesus, you're my Savior, forgive me. And he will cleanse you and forgive you because he shed his blood. And he will not turn you over to the prince of darkness. And that's why Paul writes at the end of Romans chapter 8, I'm convinced, I am convinced that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Life, death, angels, principalities and powers, things present, things to come, nothing will ever be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Why is that so? Because on one day, 2,000 years ago, Jesus looked the devil in the eye and on behalf of every single one of us said to him, be gone, and he got up and he left the room. Amen? Let's stand together and worship the Lord.